I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. For today's episode, I'm happy to introduce Edith Schlaffer, the founder and executive director of Women Without Borders and Sisters Against Violent Extremism. She's joining us by phone from her headquarters in Vienna, Austria, and we're very happy and very fortunate to have her with us today. Thank you, Edith. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, I want to start by talking about your work. In many ways, you've been a pioneer on the role of women and mothers encountering violent extremism. Can you tell us and our listeners a bit about how you got started in this effort? Yes, it's uh, quite a while back. Um, It started out uh, in 2008 or even earlier. I was traveling uh, across uh, war zones, areas of conflict to talk to women, to uh, collect their testimonies. And um, this was uh, when I realized that they were not part of the global security efforts and the potential security architecture which could be more solid than it actually is. So I looked at the women increasingly um, as uh, the missing building block of a new security architecture. And meanwhile, we have become used to an entirely new set of vocabulary since then uh, that is committing our thoughts and our language. Jihad, infidels, foreign fighters, jihadi brides, and lately increasingly lone wolves. And these are not any more exotic terms, but everyday challenges that seem to threaten our way of life. But um, in order to get by, we still continue to hope we might be safe, trusting in intelligence services, relying on law enforcement agencies, and somehow believing, and I do really think beyond reason, that military forces can protect us. But the attacks continue. And I'm asking myself, is the fight hopeless? And I started asking myself uh, years back already, is there something we have not tried yet? And this is when I actually started to explore the role of the potential role of women, but particularly the role of mothers who are in the closest proximity of um, the young and uh, the young adults and the adolescents. who are lured to Syria and um, wondering, you know, uh, will they be able to give us answers why uh, we are in such a critical moment in history, why young men and women are departing, permanently leaving everything behind they know so far, their friends, their siblings, playstations, (laughs) their mothers, fathers who raised them, and they relocate to a war zone they had only ever heard about. This process of getting lost, 
maybe to kind of phrase it as the process of uh, radicalization, those who have witnessed this and maybe haven't had the means to intervene or react properly, those are the family members and those are the mothers. I felt that somehow getting to the root causes, we must look to the front lines and we must look to the group that truly understands or tries to understand and those are the mothers. So this is how it started. It's um, based on collecting evidence uh, as far as we get the means and uh, when we want to implement proper models and, uh, and projects. So um, we safeguarded a grant to explore uh, the question whether mothers actually can challenge extremism. This was the first ever study to explore the potential of mothers to protect their children from the lure of radicalization and to prevent them to be lured into these territories of ISIS and other organizations. And um, we did a big survey uh, in countries uh, which have been targets of violent extremist activities over a long time. And the sample size was quite uh, robust. We explored, uh, we surveyed over 1,000 uh, mothers. And uh, that was in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in Palestine, Israel, and in Northern Ireland, which is important because we can't, looking at, we can learn a lot from our own history in the heart of Europe, from Northern Ireland, for a better understanding. Yeah, I think that'd be terrific. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that you identified a real gap um, in the fact that mothers and women weren't involved in peacebuilding efforts and also saw that they were an untapped resource. So tell us a little bit about how you applied that knowledge and that understanding to the model that you developed. Yes. Um, uh, actually, I saw this gap, and particularly talking to mothers in Palestine, mothers of suicide bombers, mothers of so-called jihadis or extremists and terrorists uh, who felt that they had overlooked something, but they wanted to put it right, even it seemed to be too late uh, for their own sons, but they wanted to contribute to um, peace building, uh, helping other women to better understand uh, the nuances or the mechanisms uh, of radicalization, um, such as the mother of uh, Sakaraya Musabi, uh, Aisha Wafi, whose son is so-called Swedish hijacker and was trained to, uh, in one of the pilot schools uh, and he wanted to fly into the towers, but he was pulled out. And uh, Aisha stood up and said that she was very sorry what her son was about to do when he was already in a high detention center. And uh, meeting Aisha, talking to her, talking to the a mother who responded to her, who had lost her son in the towers, uh, I thought these women have something so interesting, so important to offer. This is a new dialogue, a dialogue in which I think we can uh, learn more about bottom-up security strategies. It's not only a top-down dialogue where people feel very often so far disconnected. This is a dialogue coming from the heart of the families and communities, a very unlikely uh, approach. So um, I also talked to mothers of suicide bombers in uh, Palestine. And uh, contrary to the myth of the jubilant uh, mother of a shaheed, 
Many of the mothers were devastated. In private, they confessed that the moment when the body was brought to the house, they, they broke down. They, they fell to the ground, but not to praise Allah. They fell to the ground because we are totally at loss. And they said, I lost everything, and it was not helping. It will not be helping Palestine. And I felt after these conversations that these voices, which are rarely heard in public, need a space. You know, to come together, to give testimony, to encourage others, uh, to challenge uh, the situation on the ground, and uh, kind of drive the 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 change from within their societies. And having said that, we um, decided to do to embark on this study, and um, there were uh, three key questions uh, I was interested in uh, because I was thinking, you know, when we build up a model, when we build up uh, some, something that could lead uh, to change on the ground, uh, we need to know what do the mothers fear, whom do they trust, and what do they need. Uh, as I mentioned, it was the first ever global study in which mothers had been asked about their experiences and attitudes. We asked concerned mothers and affected mothers, mothers of, at that time, just boys, because in most of these countries, uh, mainly boys were targeted. Uh, boys between uh, 15 and 25, and it was uh, very interesting. The, um, the what they feared was, of course, the usual thing: the internet, the radical leaders, television, political organizations, religious organizations. So there was not much surprise. But interesting enough, when we asked them about um, the trust uh, factor. Uh, we saw that they trusted each other, that they wanted to break through the silence within their own group, start talking about the challenges, they trusted the family members, and outside of the family um, group, the larger family group, they trusted the teachers. So I saw immediately a bridge between teachers and parents which needed to be uh, bridged. And interestingly enough, uh, the trust gap um, was starting with religious organizations, uh, religious leaders, which is surprising since the majority of the sample were absolutely pious women, but they saw that the lure, that the threat came from around the mosque, from uh, religious advisors or teachers, so they were very wary. Uh, and it's interesting because we always, uh, particularly here in the West, we always push them for advice uh, to go to the mosque, but very often they don't get the proper advice, or women are not even heard there in these spaces. Um, the least, the least um, trust uh, they shared with police, which is also, I think this has to be kind of challenged. Law enforcement is important, the bridge between uh, families, law enforcement, the families can solve everything um, on their own is absolutely important. Uh, a total trust uh, fallout with army and local and international government, and um, whom, uh, um, how would they like to combat the threat of radicalization? So they uh, all ask uh, to get the chance to have a space where they can uh, talk about these issues in a safe, in a kind of a safe space. That was very important to them. And uh, learning uh, about uh, early warning signs. They were not aware, you know, what actually was critical, how to respond. 
and they all requested educational tools, how to talk to their children, how to relate to their children, and uh, knowledge of religion was also mentioned. So given the fact that you have been working in this space for a while in a variety of environments, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of the impact that the work has had on communities, on families, and in particular on mothers' ability to communicate better with their children and to intercede if they do recognize these signs of radicalization. So um, we, from the findings uh, of the study, we developed this educational tool of the mother's schools, bringing together mothers who are concerned and affected and um, kind of uh, providing them with uh, with knowledge, providing them uh, with the access to enable them to become uh, become better equipped to have conversations in the families with uh, with uh, uh, with the young with the young in the families. So um, we saw that they would be very well placed to introduce alternative narratives in the critical early moments that the window to intervene in the process of radicalization usually is short, and those who are closest to the kids need to know about their preventive potential uh, through involvement, their involvement, but what would it look like, the involvement? So um, we, uh, we created uh, the model, we created the tools, the, the handbook, uh, how to empower the women to build this community-based security strategy to prevent the children and potentially create, uh, you know, stand, uh, create stop factors to stand up uh, to, to the radical ideologies. Mm-hmm. And um, we are running, in the cur- curriculum, we are running through um, trust building uh, over three months uh, after we have trained uh, with our local partners who are embedded in the communities, the facilitators, uh, we form groups of 15 to 20 mothers who run through the program over three to four months on a weekly basis, where they learn how to trust in themselves. Self-confidence is crucial. If they don't have a voice, they can't gain the self, the, the, the respect uh, of their family members. So trusting in themselves, uh, self-awareness, self-confidence is the building block, the crucial building block of the mother's schools. And then we explore the developmental stages of the children, and the women love this program. They know very little about uh, this, uh, what actually happens during adolescence, uh, what is already a sign of potential deviance, and uh, what is just, you know, um, uh, a response to critical moments uh, going through this uh, stage uh, of uh, puberty. And uh, we help them to analyze family and child dynamics. And um, particularly important uh, is that uh, they learn to uh, listen to each other in the family. Uh, We realized from many conversations with uh, recruiters and actually uh, when we go to uh, Indonesia, for example, uh, it is not difficult to meet everyday recruiters. They are, um, they are part of the lives of these people. They might be teachers, they might be religious advisors, 
and they have their ways, you know, to lure the children and channel them uh, on this path to uh, to extremism. So uh, we interviewed these people, we talked to them, and we learned from them that they invest quite a deal of time in each and every potential recruit. In average, 60 to 70 hours, one-on-one conversations. Imagine a family scenario where a mother, a father, would talk to the child on a particular issue over this period of time. But the children feel taken seriously. They feel their concerns are heard. So strengthening the listening skills, uh, engaging the children in these conversations, uh, giving them the feeling that they are taking seriously is so important. It's another building block uh, in the teachings of the mother schools. And the mothers come with a lot of examples, uh, particularly after a few sessions, when there is a trusted atmosphere, when they feel safe, when they see that the situation is non-judgmental, that they can share their stories, their observations, their concerns. Uh, they break open and they talk about all these issues. And they feel that it is the first time they can open up and that they can share and learn from each other. So the group scenario is absolutely important. And uh, this also leads to community engagement because when they start talking amongst themselves, they don't only bring the messages and uh, the learning to the dinner table conversations, uh, where usually the family members are quite surprised what the women have to share. They also bring these messages to the community and they talk about it in the wider family context with teachers, uh, with neighbors, with friends, and the news travel. So, Edith, to what extent do you think that the work that you're doing can be expanded and replicated in other contexts? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you're already actively engaged. We have so far engaged with uh, around 1,500 women who have, have been running through our mother schools in Pakistan, India, Kashmir, um, Nigeria, Indonesia, Zanzibar, and now we have brought the model to Europe, um, to Austria, Belgium, uh, England, and soon uh, Macedonia and France. And uh, what we saw, what was, uh, in terms of the change, uh, what was quite striking, um, the change in the family dynamics that uh, people start talking about this vital, critical, taboo issue of extremism, violence, and terrorism. This is quite a breakthrough moment. When they can address the issue, uh, it is already a huge step forward because usually it's neglected, it's hidden, it's uh, kind of, it's something that's not being touched. very often family members, even if they realize something, they don't want to know, they think it will go away, it's just a phase. But um, if there's an open, transparent conversation and if children don't feel uh, um, scolded or pushed away or punished, uh, there is a chance that uh, a conversation is starting. I can imagine that the work that you're doing might be threatening to men to see women having the self-confidence and feeling more empowered and really thinking that they have not only the ability, but also the right to engage with their children in order to protect them. Maybe you can speak a little bit about the role of men and what role 
they need to play in countering violent extremism. In um, in in on Java, uh, it was the first time in Indonesia that we got the request uh, to start with uh, men's groups, to start so-called father schools, because they felt that they also want to be part of it. They very often, when the, the children were um, kind of attacked, uh, recruited, or where they felt they were volatile, the fathers thought, uh, they had this sense of being stranded. They also want to have a place where they can share, where they can talk, which is quite uh, amazing, you know, taking the notion of masculinity and the notion that men, when they can't protect their their family, that they feel shame and they uh, don't go public with it. They, you know, they want to handle it in private and uh, push it away. So I think this is a real breakthrough moment. Um, we already had um, workshops with uh, male family members, with boys, young adults, and adolescent boys in Kashmir, which was really interesting. Uh, they also came to one of the last sessions of the mother school meeting, and uh, they came to ask whether their mothers, uh, their sisters, their sister-in-laws, would be included in the next round of mother schools because they read the material and one of the boys said, um, I realized uh, how much nicer my mother became. She's actually listening. We can share so much. And uh, she even came to a demonstration uh, and we made sure it was uh, a peaceful demonstration with us to better understand what was going on there. So I do think we have found a way of... Um, of family and community engagement that is uh, very trust building, that is uh, uh, leading the way, uh, opening up the minds, uh, addressing the issue, and um, creating networks of support, supporting each other. This is something the communities absolutely need uh, to overcome this disconnect uh, with each other and also the disconnect with policy strategies. Yeah, so I think that's a good place to pause for a second. So you've talked a lot about the transformation that's happened within families and within communities and people's minds opening up, but also, you know, skills developing in terms of being able to really listen and understand what's going on. Um, I was hoping that maybe you could give us some concrete examples of where mothers because of this training and their involvement and these efforts have actually been able to detect and prevent their children from becoming radicalized do you have any examples like that where you can really demonstrate that the model is working yeah absolutely absolutely before that i would like to see um i I would like to say um something what we recognize in all this uh, family meetings and in the mother school meetings. The first is through the eyes of the mother, because we learn a lot about uh, what drives these children. Um, uh, We try to come closer to the understanding, the individual pieces that make them so vengeful and hate-driven, and why the narratives uh, that pull them uh, are working. And I've noticed two things, I think, which I would really like to share. Um, that weave these young people together. The first is this underlying feeling of inferiority. If we can can deal with this underlying feeling of inferiority in the young, 
I think we will be more successful um, combating uh, uh, the lure that uh, that drives them away. They feel something is missing in their lives and they don't feel like they belong. They have to prove themselves. And if they're not welcomed, accepted with their concerns, with sometimes their prisoners <laughs> in their own families, uh, this is another um, uh, push factor. Did you say they're prisoners in their own families? No, they are, if they're not uh, accepted in their own family. Oh, okay. And, uh, and uh, the second uh, uh, element, um, I, I, I think I could extract this, that they personalize the political. These young individuals find affirmation for their internal struggles in the divisive rhetoric of up and them. So the question becomes, how for the families, for the mothers in the conversation, how do we reconfigure this so that the young can find uh, alternatives? Yeah, I mean, especially with those insights about the inferiority, inferiority, are there things that mothers in particular have done or could do to address that and sort of stop the cycle of radicalization and recruitment? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking of a mother in Kashmir. And Kashmir, I think, is a good example since uh, the conflict is boiling there. They are, uh, it is a very complicated situation. Uh, I think it's going on over the last weeks now. And uh, uh, the community is being quite stuck, and I have regular conversations with our mobilizers uh, of the Kashmir uh, mother schools. Uh, we did there in, uh, in Srinagar and uh, in Kupara, near the line of control to the Pakistani border. And uh, it is interesting what we heard, that uh, the, group of mother is, the groups of mothers are quite divided. There's the group who is able to hold their children back, they talk to them, they stone belting, running out, confronting uh, the Indian army. Uh, is not the way forward, that they should uh, think of alternatives, uh, stay inside now, uh, think long-term, and they can actually lead these conversations. But there is certainly another group of mothers who is even, uh, and uh, these mothers have not been with us in the mother schools, but they are visible in the streets. They are uh, supporting the protesters. They are uh, supporting them with water and food, so they can go on in, in their protests, which uh, escalate uh, in a lot of violence. And uh, a lot of young boys out in the streets have lost their eyesight uh, uh, because they're hit by the by the bullets. Uh, so that's very sad. On the one hand, there's a success. On the other hand, uh, we have to be realistic. Uh, it's a very slow process. In, uh, we have some of the examples, I think, uh, this is an interesting one. We are running uh, a series of mother schools now in Austria uh, with, the, with the Chechenian community. Uh, from the Chechenians, there is quite a number of, uh, we have quite a number of uh, travelers to Syria, and uh, we, ha- we are very lucky to uh, get connected with a strong Chechenian uh, mobilizer who uh, could bring the group together and uh, now the uh, third round of mother schools with the Chechenians is already starting. And um, uh, a young woman from the migrant Muslim background who has been born and raised uh, in Austria, uh, she came, uh, her mother came to the mother school and uh, she, they are of migrant uh, background. 
And the mother explained how they still live in two worlds, in the worlds of their uh, parents uh, who have, and, uh, who have, have put in both places and how confusing it obviously often is for the young, even the second and third generation, and how torn, torn they uh, seem. And uh, she talked about her 15-year-old uh, girl there, a middle-class family. The girl is a high achiever. She came to a male-majority technical school. In the school, um, uh, where they were not used, the boys were not used uh, to interact with female colleagues, uh, she was harassed. Uh, they pulled up her T-shirt, uh, took pictures, posted it sadly on the Internet. And um, she confided in her mother, who approached the school. Uh, the, the boys were confronted, uh, but uh, there was no solution. I mean, uh, because she made friends with a young Chechenian man who was very empathetic and became her protector. He confronted the boys in the schoolyard and slowly groomed her, explaining, yeah, yeah, girls are always a target in the Western world since the infidels would not respect the dignity of women. So she became part of the Chechenian peer group. And uh, one of the members, whom she knew quite well, left for Syria. Um, and when uh, he tried to return, she was in touch with him via uh, Facebook. When he tried to return, he was punished and killed. So she, the girl felt very guilty. Uh, but over the conversations uh, with the mother, um, uh, the, the, you know, the whole process could be observed and uh, monitored. Uh, the mother started to investigate this group, and it turned out it was a well-known gang. She became quite alarmed and informed the police. At first, the girl was very aggressive, even kicking her mother when she walked through the living room, telling her, how hard it was to live under the same roof as pork eaters. Uh, but when the mother stopped shouting back after many, many conversations around the mother's school meetings, um, and she tried to understand, express sympathy, exploring what so deeply upset her daughter, there was a certain turn in her. And uh, the mother still thinks that the situation is overwhelming, but she feels that she has a support system now. And this is, I think, so important, you know, to, to kind of open this conversation, to talk continuously about it, to get the input from other mothers. And the other mothers learn from this process. And they, this is very often an opening moment. They see, oh, my God, I don't have to defend my child to uh, behave so inappropriately because this mother shares this in the group. So I can also share. And uh, this is the the first, uh, first entry point to navigate, uh, uh, to, to kind of support the mothers to navigate this difficult situation. So they get the confidence and the skills to redirect and re-anchor their children. I think this is the most uh, important work. Uh, another example, uh, maybe from Nigeria, where we had... Um, maybe you can... Um Stop right there for just a second, because one of the things I think we're facing in the United States is even if mothers or other family members or peers recognized the signs that somebody that they love is being radicalized, there aren't any community resources to turn to. So in the examples that you're talking about, when the mothers did recognize that there was a problem, in addition to going to each other and having this network of other mothers to help 
work through what they were experiencing. Were there other community resources available to them, like counselors or you know public health officials or other people that could help address some of the grievances that were driving you know their son or daughter to be interested in extremist ideology? Um, there are a number of resources already available, but uh, not to an extent uh, we would uh, need them. Uh, there are hotlines uh, so that concerned uh, and affected uh, family members can call and get counseling. I think there is not enough uh, specific counseling uh, in this issue, but I do think uh, this is, um, I think, a problem where kids are on the tipping point for a very small group. I think what is needed is this uh, consensus that we have to update uh, parenting skills. And uh, the issues like reading early warning signs uh, relate to the children, lead this difficult uh, nuanced discussions. Uh, they are not circling only around uh, extremism, violent extremism. Uh, you need this competency also when, you, when your children are involved in gangs and drugs and all kinds of, uh, of misuse and abuse um, uh, and abusive behavior. So I think we have to consider how we can update uh, parenting in these difficult times and uh, look at ways, you know, that we don't find in any classical parenting uh, books. And uh, I feel that uh, in the mother schools now we don't, we found a way to go beyond uh, the mother's reach because, as you say, realistically they can't do it all. Mm -hmm. um, we train uh nurses, we train, you know, those who have access to a broader group of uh, people. Uh, they, we, train, uh, we train teachers, we liaise with teacher associations, and uh, I'm very interested also to include female police officers. We made an, um, a, pilot, a pilot project uh, in uh, Indonesia again, uh, where we included in the training sessions, in the, in the three-day training camp where we prepare the facilitators to run the mother school courses, uh, we included uh, two female police officers. And that was really interesting because they, the mothers felt some kind of relief that they got to know these people personally and uh, that they, you know, they presented a very different uh, uh, picture from the mainstream law enforcement uh, person they usually had. And very often the family members don't have the best uh, interaction or experiences with uh, police interaction because uh, they interact with them and the fire is already in the roof. But uh, to get the opportunity to liaise with them and to ask questions before uh, the house is burning, that's very important. Uh, which, are, you know, which we established in nine regions and we are expanding now. We are starting in Nigeria, for example, uh, in the fall. Um, we are thinking of a global movement of mother schools to bring together not only mothers but also key security stakeholders to strategize for prevention of radicalization, to start the discussion in the communities. I think this is absolutely uh, important, and we have to bring together uh, transnational uh, initiatives uh, which are operating independently to combine best practices, collaborate, uh, scale up the approaches, 
um, and uh, to see um, also what what would the role of women be uh, to to contribute to informed policies uh, and implement uh, these policies also on, on higher levels. I think this is a top-down and bottom-up approach, uh, and um, I'm quite sure that sustainable security strategies are based on bottom-up approaches, uh, and the civil society must be included. But the connection with the official official space, uh, official space of policy shapers, uh, is of course uh, instrumental. So. Um, uh, it's a, a two-way process. You really anticipated my next question, which is what more can the United States government or the international community or people who are concerned about the rise in radicalization and recruitment do to harness the power of women and mothers in preventing violent extremism? Are there tools in the toolkit that, that, that we're not sufficiently utilizing? Uh, yeah, I think a lot can be done. Uh, the most important thing is to keep to help to de-emotionalize the whole uh, terrain um, of uh, uh, violent extremism. The whole discussion around extremism is so loaded. Uh, I think we need to be clear-headed, and uh, we also have to work on the media. The media is sensationalizing the issues, and if we uh, allow that we are drawn into these uh, narratives of uh, scandalization, uh, we are lost. I mean, violence is not a new phenomenon. It's uh, worrisome what is happening today. We need to protect the young. We need to protect our societies. But we have gone through uh, very turbulent times alone in my lifetime. There was the Cold War. There was the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. There, there were so many issues. You know, we had we were constantly going through wars, challenges, terrorist threats, uh, and we have to be realistic. And uh, I think we should not give too much honor to uh, the so-called caliphate and ISIS uh, that they are so unique and powerful. I think we have to deal more with uh, the internal issues in our societies uh, that uh, the youth get the chances they deserve, that uh, inequalities, racism, uh, all kind of uh, toxic uh, everyday challenges are taken care of. I think this is our call. This is our battlefield where we have to work consistently and we have to connect with uh, the young, and we have to provide spaces for them where they come together. I think we are best placed uh, to uh, send the message to our youngsters that uh, we are here for them and that we are ahead of the recruiters, that we don't allow them to extract them uh, from uh, their communities, the families where they actually belong to but we have to give them uh, this feeling of belonging. I think that's a very positive and optimistic note to end on, which unfortunately is not the way that many of these podcasts come to an end. So Edith, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and really for sharing your insights and your expertise um, from the front lines of countering violent extremism. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.